Hello friends, it's your old buddy, Chris Slight here. So, you might notice one thing while listening to this wonderful podcast by Rami. First of all, actually, let me apologize for the lateness of the show. Mine and Gwen's lives have been crazy at the moment. A lot going on, which you will hear about in due course. We recorded this interview with Rami about a month ago now, so apologies for it being late. However, what you will notice is that quite rapidly into the show, I am not saying anything. Why? Well, my internet died. Yet again, which has been an ongoing issue for me lately, but it died. I implored them to keep going, and they did. So, enjoy the show, and I'll speak to you properly next week. Hey Gwen, how you doing? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? I am good. Thank you very much. We have a guest this week. Rami, how you doing? I am good. I'm a little tired. It's late here, but for some reason I just woke up. So that's weird. Wait, what time is it where you are? It is currently 7 p.m. on the... Uh, it's almost New Year's, uh, so it, we're, we're getting there. Uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty, exciting, pretty exciting time. You're, you're rolling out of bed at 7 p.m.? What's... Uh... What's going on over there, Rami? I've I've been working a lot. Uh, it's it's a thing. Uh, there's this this project, and I guess by the time this podcast launches, it's it's live. I guess uh, I've been working on this for a year and a half, pretty much. Uh, it's called Meditations, and it's available at meditations.games. And uh, the idea is that somewhere in I think 2016 I must have played this little game called Tempress which is made by a developer do- uh, called TAK T-A-K mm-hmm. uh, on itch.io and it's this very simple little game where you just kind of have to like f- solve a puzzle by clicking and you- you're just filling up lines and it- it's this incredibly simple thing that at, at first glance you kind of mess with it and you just kind of go this is interesting and then like 15 minutes later you're still trying to solve it and there's just like this weird obsession with how can I click? Where should I click? Is there like a rhythm to my click? Is there like, do I click in different parts of the screen? And you're just trying to figure out this puzzle. And I thought it was a really interesting start of my day. So I reached out to Tak and I asked him if I could use the game for, um, for a project that I came up with uh, while playing that game, which is I just kind of want to start every day of the year with a little game. <laughs> So for the past, Wait, is this an actual thing you're going to do? You're going to start every day each year with a little game? So that's kind of what's happening. Uh, for the past 365 days, um, for all of 2018, every day I've collected a game by a developer made specifically inspired by that day. Uh, and they're all very short games. Oh, wow. Uh, they're all like little meditations. That's why the name is there on the day. Uh, whether that is their birthday or the day... Um, they got their pet or a day in which uh, they lost somebody or a day in which something great happened or a day in which they just had a lovely wonder around the neighborhood and they thought that was very inspired. Um, and they just made a game about that. Um, so for if you go Wait, to meditations.games. So, so did you reach out to all these people and you said, hey, you get July 4th or you get like some day. No. Um, I let- on that day, make a game and let me know what you what it is i made a giant spreadsheet and i told them pick a day that is important to you or if you don't want to pick a specific day just look for what's important on 
any random day, and then if you see something, like claim it in the spreadsheet. So for the past 365 days, I've had 366 developers make a game um, mm. because I didn't want to let leap years be, uh, be left out. And um, there's, there's, an amazing, there's an amazing lineup of developers. And the, uh, the way it's going to work is if you go to meditations.games, uh, you can download the launcher. And the launcher will allow you to access the game of the day it currently is every day. So, wow, dude, that's so cool. It is. That's a, Rami, you do, uh, we didn't introduce you at the beginning of the podcast, which is fine, but we probably should, because you do so many, so many things. I, uh, too many things. Do you, too many things. You do a lot. Um, you win a lot of awards and stuff. I don't even know where to begin. But like, yeah, so you're, you're a game developer. Um, yes. You're a famous advocate. You, um, you've accomplished a lot. Um, I think you won the Ambassador Award this year at GDC. I did. I did. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm glad it was uh, the Ambassador Award, not the Lifetime Achievement Award. You, well, you're not dead yet. Well, that's the so, thing. That's like when you get the Lifetime Achievement Award, I always kind of go like, eh, is this the like pat on the shoulder, get out of here one? Or like, it kind of feels... <laughs> it was, yeah. It was it's like, hey, hey, you've peaked. Yeah, Just you've heads up. <laughs> you're done. Uh, I don't it's know. It's all downhill. From, why don't you retire? Yeah, I don't know. Like I, it's been a very interesting career. I um, I so yeah, I'm a, I'm a game developer at Vlambeer. Uh It's a small Dutch independent studio. We're the creators of uh, games such as Super Crate Box, uh, Ridiculous Fishing, which won the iOS Game of the Year in 2013, and as far as I know, is still the only fishing game about machine guns. Uh, we did Luftrausers, which was a, a airplane dogfighting game, which. Uh, dog fighting does not imply that there's dogs fighting. It, it's just the word for aerial combat, I guess. And then we did uh, Nuclear Throne, which is a top-down roguelike uh, most recently. And since then, we've had a little uh, hiatus. Um, and I'm the I'm one half of that, that studio. And then on top of that, I am, uh, as you said, I'm, I'm an advocate for game development everywhere. Uh, I believe that game development is well games or play specifically is the most global language we have on earth you know you put a mm -hmm. you put a ball down on the floor and you give it a kick and somebody will kick it back no matter what language they speak um and i i, I really believe in that but i also believe that if this is the most global language in our world everybody should have the right to speak it equally and with the same voice uh, and that's just not how the world works at the moment so i travel around the world uh trying to help communities in uh, emerging territories, place where the games industry is just growing or just starting. I try to help them out whatever way they need. Uh, so I travel a lot. I give a lot of talks. I work with local governments and work with local developers. Um, and I, I mean, I'd love to know more about that. I'd like to know, like, so when you travel around the world, you go to these places and there's obviously game development is an, ex uh, I don't want to call it an expensive hobby, but like you have to have a decent computer. Um, you have to have a certain amount of like it takes time to make a game mm -hmm. and usually you can't go from like working at a shop to like being a game developer you have to do a certain amount of it in your free time first or train yourself up on the skills um mm -hmm. so like what what specifically like what initiatives have you been doing uh overseas and stuff so there's a lot of every country seems to have its own challenges and I, i've kind of come to believe that there's several stages that every community has to go through before they become sort of an international internationally recognized community so 
for a lot of places, game development is just not at the place where developers know that other developers exist, which sounds, you know, kind of like impossible because game developers tend to, to find similar places. But in a lot of countries, there's just no infrastructure for that. So developers just don't know other developers exist. And that's sort of like the stage within their one. country or within the world, within their city, even. Uh, oh, sure. Like people will be will be just, you know, they'll set up the first indie meetup and just put out a message in like a local newspaper, like 20 people will show up and they'll all be like, what? I thought I was <laughs> the only one. Um, uh, well, this is a I mean, it's a hobby that is a lot of people are kind of introverted, um, like if you're on a computer and stuff. So I can see how the, uh, yeah. the desire to get out there and meet others is maybe not uh, there. Yep. So you've got that stage, and then after that stage, you've got like a little meetup, and people talk to each other. Uh, but it's it's entirely a local community, and the main thing that happens there is it's usually not a question of money or even time. It's um, it's a question of trust that this is a real job, um, and and more like trust that it can work out. Like the, a lot of people when they're in, in emerging territories, they've never there's not a local hero that did like that game, right? There's not somebody who's made a, a career out of this or who's earning money with it. Like just there's no person like that. So at that stage, usually what I try to do is I try to find teams with, uh, with a game that has a lot of potential and I try to push that game, uh, try to make sure that the stores know about it, that the press knows about it. I sort of like try to help make any game there into a, a success so that the developer that made that game or the people that made that game can start giving back that network and those uh, those connections to the local developers there. That's always um, that's always a way of doing it because at that point you've got your um, you've got your hero. Yeah. And the that makes sense. The hero is an interesting one because in, in stage three and this is one of my favorite stages what ends up happening is the community turns a little bit more international through those connections and through that network. And then the entire community, sort of inspired by the success of that hero, just like turns on the hero and rebels against them. What? And it just kind of happens the same way every way. And it's not because they don't like that person. It's just because they want to make not the same thing as them. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I can see how if the only game you've ever seen come out of um, Made Up City Place is this one game everybody else lives in made up city place probably wants to make is pressured to make something similar to that game like say somebody makes something in south africa and it has a very unique feel and vibe that's like personifies south africa are you saying other developers in south africa feel pressured to make something similar so at first and, at first they all feel pressured to make the same as people in the west make right uh, yeah. that's where they start like they all start to like try to emulate the successes that are here because that's the only example they've seen and then when the hero emerges for a while you're right they'll start to try and and emulate that success and then eventually they'll realize that they have their own voice and mm -hmm. their own background and they'll try and rebel as hard as possible against that hero so um in in uh, let's say one of one of the countries i go to the most popular game is a is a tower defense game actually mm -hmm. and uh, that developer became uh, you know was was quite successful started giving back to that community and there's not a single person who's made a top-down strategy-esque game in the entire country because 
they want to do better than them, proving that they can make something else than them. And it's not malicious. It's just, you know, you now have a bar to aim for mm -hmm. and you want to go over it. Uh, yeah. That's honestly the most exciting stage for me because that's where uh, instead of trying to adhere to the Western ideal of market and game, people start making their own stuff like they, they start being creative in that way. It I mean, I, I feel like you feel that pressure <clears throat> everywhere. I, I think a lot of and part of it is a lot of people lean into nostalgia, the games they loved when they were kids. And they try to make a version of that that's, uh, you know, like their version of that. It's it's this game I loved from when I was a kid, except it's better. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, <clears throat> so I can see why the tendency would be to, if for a lot of these emerging territories, the only games they had when they were kids were coming from the West, right? Yep. Yeah, it's usually Counter-Strike, Soldat, uh, FIFA, mm -hmm. uh, games like that, like usually like, in a lot of places around the world, it'll be uh, mostly South America and, and Africa. It'll be more Netcafe style games. Uh, more what style? Netcafe. So they're like these these. So oh, Netcafe. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of places, computers were not a thing you had at home for a long time. So instead, there would be these Netcafes for kids, uh, where there would just be like twelve computers set up on a LAN, so you could play together, and there'd be like mm -hmm. a reasonable enough internet connection. And then kids would just go there to play. And when I was growing up, um, when I was growing up a few years in uh, in Egypt, um, I also went to Net Cafe, and there was just my favorite place to hang out because you could play some games, you could talk to your friends, you could like if after you're done, you could go kick a ball around or something. And it was just, it was just part of growing up for me, and it, it's it's a lovely sort of social like space to play games. Uh, but Net Cafes for a lot of people like games that thrived in net cafes were are, are still very popular around the world because they're a way to play games in a social context without needing a computer at home and then there's just territories where computers never took off this place where just they skipped computers they just went straight, yeah, they to, went mobile straight phone. to mobile yep yeah which interesting so what is what would you define as like a net cafe style game i'm curious because i've never been to one well, so usually they're like LAN, like very LAN optimized games. So games that are really easy to play on a network. Uh, Starcraft in some countries, uh, a lot of like, you know, Quake, uh, Counter-Strike, mm -hmm. uh, Soldat, which is very popular around the world. Um, like just a little... LAN party. Yeah, deathmatchy style LAN party-esque games uh, tend, to be, tend to be very popular. And then any game that you can play one versus one. Uh, because you just get two friends competing and then everybody else just watches and cheers and punches whoever like well you know friendly punch on the shoulder uh whoever <laughs> cool. is ahead yeah it's a very fun experience honestly and i i still love going to net cafes whenever i do uh but it's it's an interesting context for what kind of games people try to make um and are your net cafes still really prevalent around the world I mean, I know you, you were about to move into the fact that I know Africa and certain places, they've just totally skipped computers and they're on mobile phones. And to me, that's wild. Like I have, I have difficulty even imagining that, you know what I mean? Yeah. As somebody who's so tethered to my computer, it's difficult to imagine. Yeah. Um, and I, it, you know what, like it took me a while to understand why there's these, these games that are big, massive AAA games on phones. Because when I think of a mobile game, I think of a very specific... Candy Crush Saga kind of shitty game, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas in these places, obviously they have 
premium games on mobile phones and it took me a while to just wrap my mind around that that that's necessary because that's like the only way to play that game it, it gets even funnier like in um in africa you know what the biggest games companies tend to be what the telecom providers because there's no good way of paying for games like credit cards haven't taken off mm-hmm. in a lot of places around the world and there's usually not something attached to your mobile phone the way it often is in the u.s and in europe so Wait, instead so like they don't have the google play store so they will have they will have a Google Play Store, but the only way to pay for games and some countries don't have Google Play Store. Uh, some people, some countries can't even set up a Google Play Store developer account, um, hmm. which is frustrating. But no, you you go and buy like a top up card for your mobile phone for like fifteen dollars, and then you buy games with your your phone credit, uh, which is a thing you can do in in a lot of countries, and that kind of makes telecom providers the biggest games companies in in that country because they effectively turn into the the middleman. They effectively turn into the store. You buy their credit and then use that credit to buy the game. Yeah, I've heard something like that goes down in China. That there's no real in America, we have the iPhone store and the, or sorry, like the Apple store, and we have Google Play. But in China, they've got um, like nine different companies that are largely telephone companies, but also have their own storefronts. Yep. Uh, like it's this conglomeration and stuff. That's it's crazy to me. It, it's such a huge part of the like this is most of the planet, and it's not something we ever think about. Like in me and my friends who are making indie games in Boston never really think about that when we're, you know, waxing philosophical. Like when, when I talk to my friends about what the market wants, it's entirely focused on what does well on Steam. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I and I've always felt like that's kind of a huge mis- like such a small part of the market compared to the world, right? Mm-hmm. But it's um, also obviously easier to focus on, which is a thing that I often tell developers when they're in emerging territories is don't don't just aim for the big market, aim for whatever market you can you can effectively affect, right? Yeah. And I think in a way, when I talk to a lot of developers, they talk about wanting to go like global and they ask me like, well, what do I do? And I kind of just usually tell them like you don't because there's, there's so much work involved in making a, a global game. Uh, and a lot of people just think of like localization, but no, it's like localization, it's culturalization, it's like making your UI work for left to right and right to left. It's making your game work in different like financial contexts, different economical contexts, different uh, cultural contexts. It's making sure that you know there's nothing in your game that's offensive, nothing in your game that would like hurt sales. That your marketing imagery works per country, where marketing styles can be very different. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just there's so much work, and yeah, there's absolutely potential. But I kind of feel like you should chase that potential in in the way where you make sure that it's your game is inclusive of those people, but not necessarily aimed at anybody else, but your core market. And then if it does well, or there seems to be potential elsewhere, you you go after that. Yeah, I I mean I obviously would agree with that. I also just think it's. Um... If you try to do everything, you'll do everything poorly. Like yeah. just starting out with a core game that you know is fun for a market that you understand, and then experimenting and seeing if you really do, if you've struck gold there, then making it bigger. I think just makes way more sense, right? Yeah, it really does, and I, it's 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 a fun, it's a fun thing that I just get asked a lot, where it's just like, how do I make my game accessible to people in X? And I'm like, I I could tell you, but it won't be helpful because. <laughs> You kind of just need a developer from there to really nail that 
or somebody who understands the context because it not even buying a game works the same way like nothing but i mean that's kind of beautiful though that people are trying to reach out to other countries mm -hmm. that people are like how do i make my game do well in africa like yeah. what does it take because I, it's better than the alternative where everyone's like well you know we we make games for our audience and i guess they'll figure it out i like yeah. it it's cool that people in the world are trying to trying so hard to like I know this is optimistic. I look at it as it's great that we're all trying to get each other to play our games. In reality, it's probably more like they want to, you know, a cut on the market. More. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's fun because as an Arab, I've always been very frustrated by Arabic in games. Uh, very usually, it's either just completely wrong, like it, it doesn't even it it doesn't it doesn't look like Arabic or it's written the wrong direction because Arabic is right to left. Yeah. Um, or the letters I mean, aren't connected. Dude, and I see you you posting these things on Twitter, but I, I got this other side of it, which is like, yo, if I pay someone for localization and they do a bad job, I have no idea. Yep. Like, I've got no idea. I have yep. no, I can't be, and it's kind of like, say, when you hire a lawyer, they make you sign this thing that's like basically saying you won't sue anybody else and it's written in legalese. And it's like, I need to hire a lawyer to help me read this paperwork that I sign when I hire a lawyer. That's yep. how I feel about localization. It's like, I well, need to hire somebody to look to proofread this localization yep no and it, it gets worse because arabic your localizer can do a great job right they can nail it 100 percent correct like gets the local like slang everything is fine in a good voice in the good and then when you copy paste it from the text file they send you into photoshop it actually breaks because computers still don't have good arabic support in 2018 so if you copy paste Arabic from one program to any Adobe program it will mess up the order of the letters that's just a reality. We Arabs just wow. have to deal with that. We we use a website that will invert the text to the wrong way around, so that when we copy paste it to Adobe, it will invert it back to the proper is there, order. And this is just an Adobe specific thing. No, Word Word and PowerPoint and Excel used to do it. They finally updated it in like March of 2017. Uh, so we can now use Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. It's great. Hmm. Uh, wow, dude. Yeah, they're cool programs. Well, uh, I mean, I would say. I, I would, I mean, the, the world where you can't use PowerPoint is almost a better world, Rami. Yeah, oh, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, that's, that's a good point. So the, really, they were doing us a favor. Uh, but <laughs> the, the, the thing that fascinates me about, um, about Arabic in games is that it was wrong forever, right? Like, people in Iran would be speaking Arabic while they don't, they speak, you know, like, definitely not Arabic, like they speak uh, Farsi or any of the local dialects. Um, but, um, and then Arabs would just speak the wrong Arabic, right? Something would be said in Egypt and they would speak like Saudi or like, you know, like the Arabic is many dialects and many tongues of the same language. So, right now, are you talking about like AAA games? Like AAA a, games, a like games dog? with like yeah. hundred, like millions of dollars of budget and they couldn't hire a single Arab to look at it and go like, eh. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm a, about this one, guys. Like I, I don't know, know. Naughty, Naughty Dog hires people. I'm. I guess I am a little bit surprised still. I'm definitely not doubting you that that happens. But oh. like, you want to you want to <laughs> see if you if you had to uh, for everybody listening as well. This is one of my favorite things. There's this this New York designer called Ramzi Nasser, yeah. and Ramzi's awesome. But one of my favorite things is he keeps this blog, this Tumblr called nope.arabic.tumblr.com. Yeah, and we just collect stuff that is supposed to be arabic and oh, a lot yeah. of it is from games or movies but there's also just like 
ridiculous ones like there's airport welcoming signs there's an immigration office that gets the arabic wrong there's oh, for fuck's cola sake, if commercials the, if you're gonna fuck it up on the immigration office i that's know terrible it's oh, great wow. hotels like of, everything dude i want to i want to help and like i want to troll like i want to <laughs> see if we can come up like what if i try to pass hieroglyphs as arabic uh like what if, let's see what kind of government agencies we can get to sign off on some of this shit probably a lot like it's just the thing like as long as it looks vaguely like drawery then people just kind of assume it's arabic and i was in russia and they kind of same say the same thing about russian in a lot of games hmm. um like wrong dialect wrong place wrong language um so now that Dude. the middle east is becoming more of a market suddenly all the arabic has gotten really good in games like before oh, there really? was yeah there was like three games that had arabic before it was like wally and FIFA, and like one more. I don't know why Wally was in there. To be honest, it's just like this little robot game needs Arabic. Yeah, for sure. Um, oh, dude. <clears throat> well, but, I mean, some of that comes down to the parent company. Um, like, for instance, maybe Wally the movie was uh, uh, translated to Arabic, so they wanted to make sure that it was also translated for the game or something. Or yeah. I, it uh -oh. could be. I it could it could very well be. I don't know why that happened. I just I just loved it. It was like FIFA and like I think Pro Evo and and Wally, -E. like two soccer games and <laughs> sad robot. Uh, Wally's not sad. So Wally is sad for a large part of the movie. It's He's, kind of the point yeah. of the movie. Yeah, it's true. All right. Um. Cool. I mean, I think. It sounds like you're ready to take on another project. Let's um. Let's get creative. Let's see like how badly we control various governments around the world we'll come up with like pictographs maybe what we'll do is we'll outline emojis and try to pass that for like farsi or something you know that there's actually honest to god there's a story of a guy who bought like an oil rig or something or like a small island and declared his own nation and then managed to like file that nation with the united nations oh yeah and like he he gave himself like army titles like he was like the general of the island and and i think the currency was like bottle caps and he would okay. also wear them as like medals and he actually showed up for like a united nations meeting and was just accepted in as like the sovereign governor of that country i mean yeah i mean if you sign the if you're willing to do the paperwork you can get away with almost anything like it's kind of surprising i um, I, I love that story i one day that is beautiful i want to be I want to be that person where I'm just like going to troll a country into existence. I feel like if anyone can pull it off, Ronnie, you can. <laughs> Though I do feel like we, we should talk about just how many projects you take on because you take on so many. I feel I did a talk at one point and uh, I think that I... Uh, like one of the slides was just a picture of your face and it's like, you don't have to be Rami. <laughs> <laughs> You don't. Like you don't. You don't have to speak a hundred times a year. You know, like you, you shouldn't even. <laughs> so what is it? Um, we had Alan Hazelden on at one point, and he was mm -hmm. talking about living as a nomad and stuff. But you don't live as a nomad. You you basically you have a home. You're just never there. Is yeah. that the kind of? Yeah, that's kind of it. Uh, I so I live in the Netherlands in this this tiny quaint little city. I guess I don't know. They always fight whether it's a city or a town. Uh, I, <laughs> in in Europe, that's like a big deal because. A town can either get city rights or not and like historically that's like a big thing and i don't know like they always fight about it but um 
the um i have a little apartment there uh and it's it's a lovely apartment i i really like being here i i got it specifically for the reason of having a home because my life is as you described like very unanchored like i spend mm -hmm. all of my time traveling i'm usually never in a country for more than like three to five days and usually when i say i'm in a different country i mean different continent mm -hmm. um because there's just a lot happening. There's so much happening in this games industry that is is worth supporting or worth, you know, like getting behind or experiencing or seeing that it's just every every like week I'm somewhere else. And I I love that. I think it's it's really interesting. It's really fun. The contrast between the different places is awesome. It's it's taught me a lot about the world. It's taught me a lot about game development. It's taught me a lot about people. Um, but yeah, so yeah. I'm kind of jealous. Like, I'd love to jet around the world basically constantly for, I think, like a year. I'd probably be tired after that. But, yeah. I mean, it sounds fun. I, I know you've definitely, I, I've seen your flight plans on Twitter and stuff. Like, you definitely daisy chain these trips. You go from conference to conference to conference. I don't know how, when was the last time you shipped a, a full on, I mean, I guess you're shipping meditations. Yeah. Um, well, and in the meanwhile, like, obviously, I kind of, like, I guess I ship countries. Like when when a country has reached a stage where I don't think I'm necessary anymore, or I don't, or the community thinks I'm not necessary anymore, I just kind of move on, right? Like there's countries that I've been to where I think my work is is kind of done, and usually you can kind of tell from the people that are starting to show up in a country, right? Like if if investors start showing up, or the people from like large international game organizations start showing up. That I'm kind of I, I've like I'm done. Like this country is now connected to the overall international infrastructure of the games industry, and then I just go elsewhere. And I'll I'll keep visiting the country like once a year to check in or something. But um, it kind of disappears from my my regular flight schedule. Um, so what's on your regular flight schedule coming up for this year? So this year, uh, there is a question mark on January 2nd where the event hasn't absolutely confirmed whether they need me as an emergency speaker. They had somebody drop out and they they came to me, which is a very common thing. And then throughout January, I have two or three events until that eventually culminates in PAX South in San Antonio. That's the first mm -hmm. major uh, uh, thing, I think. I take it America is not a country you think needs... Uh, help connecting to the global no it infrastructure. doesn't so but I, I actually so i'll be honest i genuinely don't know my flight schedule usually uh because there's so like a lot of people think of flying as like a, a relatively big deal and obviously for me it's it's not mm -hmm. so usually it's an alarm on my phone that just says go to the airport okay. and, and then i show up and i just on the way there i'll check where i'm flying and what i'm doing um, oh that's nuts do you have somebody else that arranges this for you? Like how, I, I mean, I guess I, I'm unclear. It sounds like you don't seek out these countries. They seek you out and... Um, yeah, usually. You get, yeah. Cool. I, I don't really, I, I have a rule against reaching out to a country because a lot of the countries I would be interested in going to are, are very young and I kind of like, it's like sort of like a Star Trek rule, I guess. I kind of don't want to. I don't want to interfere with a community that's still finding its own voice because then somebody that has like sort of industry cred can have a lot of effect on that voice, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of yeah, want the I community think, yeah. to reach the voice where they can reach out and be like, "Hey, you should come visit," and then I'll go. So, yeah, countries tend to reach out to me. 
Um, and sometimes it's developers and sometimes it's the government and sometimes it's somebody in between somebody, you know, like a, a university or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always, it's always just fun to go to a new place and then just realize just how much game development there. And the thing that inspires me most about this, you know, is when, when you're a game developer, you know, it's a lot of hard work, right? Yeah. But then when you realize how much extra work these people are doing, to be able to just like participate in our industry, not to like make something like that will, will you know, like uh, basically out, outshine the competition, not something that will have like a, a lasting cultural impact on the industry, not something like they're just trying to like make a game that like a hundred people play. And the amount yeah. of effort that goes into that because of the, the context of where they are or the context of, of how, like there's this studio that, they work in Unity uh, down in, in, in West Africa. They work in Unity uh, in, a, in a relatively rural area. And at the end of the day, the programmers will print their code and the level designers will, will trace the level blocks, right? Without the art, obviously, but trace the level blocks. So in case the power goes out for the next week and a half, they can still sort of work. Wow. And I was like, what? how... You... There, there's like a million jobs you could do in your life, right? Wow, man. Yeah, that's crazy. And they're all more stable than this one. And they all have better opportunities than this one. And you decide that you want to print code and with a marker fix bugs, maybe. And then go back and check whether it works when the power comes back on. And they're just like, yeah, we love video games. I'm like, you love video games way much. Like, Yeah, Jesus, I can't imagine. And that's, that's- just- it's so inspiring. It's so wild. You go there and it's just like, wow, you love video games a lot. I want you to make all the video games. Yeah, I'm like, part of me is like, you know, you can make a board game. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just, I always say the same thing. Like, you should pay for prototype more. And they're like, no, our games aren't really made for pay prototyping. They're a lot about like, you know, the feel of like impact. And I'm like, I, I feel that. That's my games too. But also your power is off. Like, what? A, like, yeah. Wow. That's. I don't even have words for that. That's crazy. Yeah. Or Jeez. or developers in countries where stores don't have signups. So in, in like Iran, but also like a bunch of African countries in uh, obviously North Korea, but I don't know how much game development is there. I know of one game studio that was in North Korea. Um, yeah. But but in a lot of countries, there's just no, there's no way of signing up for the Google Play Store or the Apple Store or Steam. Uh, you can't make mm-hmm. a developer account. So those those people have to go and find a Western publisher that will launch their game for them because they're not allowed to, uh, which yeah. is which is ridiculous. Like, imagine that you can't... Like, the point of mobile for a lot of indie devs was that we could self-publish. And now just imagine that there's entire parts of the world where that's just not true. Like, that never happened. Just remove that from the history of video games. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a weird take, by the way, that the entire point of mobile was that you could self-publish. I never felt that way and i was in silicon valley during the mobile boom back oh, in the day well i could tell you in in the in the indie space the the 2010 there's like 20 what was it 20 it was honestly 20 dudes and like that was kind of <laughs> it uh in 2010 like early indie that was kind of the thing like it was the only place developers were allowed to go without anybody telling them no Really? Yeah. I mean, I guess I wasn't indie, so it's really hard to imagine. I don't know what indies did back then, to be honest. Yeah, I guess I really wasn't. Well, there weren't. Uh, but I always thought of, like, 
to me, because I was in Silicon Valley, the companies I knew around that were mobile companies were like, had a shit ton of venture capital. They were making a free-to-play game. In general, for some reason in my mind, free-to-play games are always super expensive. Um, <laughs> at the time, free-to-play was new. I yeah. think that that's the other thing. Free-to-play and mobile were both new at the same time. Yeah. So you would see like, you know, the venture capital money raining down on these things. And so in my my mind, it's still like this thing where you need a ton of money uh, in order to even enter. Um, and like now when I think of mobile, I think of, yeah, who cares if you can get on the store? You need you need to be testing your ARPU or whatever the shit in like... Don't some... you love that abbreviation? Yeah, I do, actually. It's, ARPU. it's the only one I remember. So, 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 did you, did, so ARPU, for, for people, uh, it, it's average revenue per user, right? Mm -hmm. And my favorite thing is at some point they realized that if you take the average revenue of every user, then it's going to be relatively low because a lot of people in free-to-play games don't pay at all. So you have to add all these zeros to the equation. So the number gets really low and it doesn't look good in meetings. So they came up with a new abbreviation and it's ARPUPU. And it's average revenue per paying user. So they cut out everybody who doesn't pay so that the number is higher. But it's a little bit. Which, which you shouldn't do because that might. See, uh, the, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of game theory here. I love it. Yeah, there's a lot of making your game look better to certain people versus reality versus like. There's also how much marketing you're spending to get a user. So yep. if you have to spend a certain amount of money to get a user, but your whales are like giving you this much money, but like. 98% of your players don't pay any money at all. Like you kind of got to have it all in your own, whatever. I yeah. hate that world. I, like, I just I, love that they, that we have uh, like a boardroom full of like serious looking people in suits and like going like our poo poo. It's like, you're literally oh, saying yeah. poo poo. Like what is like, this is how do you all keep a straight face? Like the first time I heard that word, I started laughing. I'm like, did you just say that? <laughs> They're going to have that. That's in the PowerPoints, man. Yeah. I've it's been like, seeing that since forever. You would have known if you had PowerPoint. It's all they're yeah. they're about. Just those graphs and charts with the ARP, with the paying per user shit. Yeah, know? I don't know. Like the 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 for for me, mobile was 2010. Uh, like the the early indie scene, the sort of like second gen indies after the the Jonathan Blow and and Chris Hacker and uh, Phil Fish and and all that. Uh, yeah. it, it was just a bunch of people who were mostly like anti-money counterculture uh it was like at the time where games were doing a lot of narratively interesting work so the entire indie scene which is like screw narrative like games should be games again that kind of stuff was very much the was very much sort of like the the talking points is the games are trying to be things that they're not it was a very stubborn scene and um but mobile was sort of like, and you can see it on the in the early mobile games as well, the early mobile indie games. It's like they're very game focused, very small, very replayable, and it just ended up that mobile and indie were looking for the same thing, which is small, replayable, gameplay heavy games. I see. So for for indies, a lot of a lot of like big indies started with a mobile hit, like Finji, uh, as a, as a games company, as a games publisher right now. Uh, you could you could reasonably argue that that started with Cannibal, which was just like a mobile like runner, like I think one of the first runners actually. Hmm. Um, and you could argue that Vlambeer in a large part owes its existence to ridiculous fishing, uh, fishing game with machine guns on mobile, um, because back then the only ways you could publish games 
was you had to make a deal with Microsoft uh, because PlayStation didn't care and Nintendo didn't care. So you had yeah. to make a deal with Microsoft for Xbox Live Arcade, uh, which was pretty much impossible, like lots of bureaucracy, lots of red tape, and they really didn't care to work with non-American companies in general. Mm. Or you would make a Flash game, uh, which back then was a thing. Uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, you would make a Flash game, and then these websites that you know people would play games at when they're at like high school IT class or something, they would pay money to put their logo at the start of that game. Uh, they were, it was called sponsorships, and uh, Vlambeer made its first money doing a sponsorship, uh, like 10k or something. And that was good oh, money, wow. but uh, yeah, we were like two 20-year-old university dropouts, so 10k for us was like, oh, wow. <laughs> no, hey, everything starts somewhere. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and we just yeah. repeated that model until we had enough money to do something else and by that time mobile was the thing so we we hopped to mobile i see yeah yeah my my view of mobile is so completely different having come from AAA and seeing i guess what you would probably consider the AAA style mobile right like, yeah yeah the big money free-to-play bullshit i hated that scene so isn't it interesting how much the industry has fragmented since then i kind of oh, love been, it it's always been fragmented i mean it was always way too big and and generally there's a it's straight up even in america there's different cultures between different studios in a way right like there's definitely like i worked at a studio where everybody came from magic the gathering when i was working on marvel heroes online and that stuff so it was very much like uh soft-spoken math nerds kind of culture whereas you which is not the same as like cliff blazinski you know, it really isn't. that style AAA, <laughs> which is not the same as like, you know, there's these different cultures even within. And I, I, somebody who works on like Madden has absolutely nothing in common as far as their experience goes or game development goes or anything compared to somebody that works on like Marvel Heroes Online compared to somebody that works in like slot machines, which is something you don't probably don't even consider them part of our industry, but they kind of are. They kind of are. Um, yeah. Pinball games. too. Yeah. Pinball games. Love yeah, that. I mean, that's yeah, like the industry is massive and, and we so all big. belong to us. And you don't like even you, you go to GDC and you feel like, oh, it's so small. And then you realize you're just in your own bubble just there. Yep. Right. Yep. Like I didn't I didn't know who Rami was until I went indie. Like no yeah. offense. Like no, that's kind of that's kind of how I prefer it anyway. Uh, I, I like being known inside the industry by the people that, you know, kind of are interested in this this segment or mission of mine beyond that i i think every like the only thing that that being visible does is it makes it easier for me to help more people so mm-hmm. in that regard i'm very thankful for for my visibility but if i could do the same work with the same effectiveness and nobody knew about me i would probably opt for that one because it's it's kind of stressful in a nice way um but yeah, no, I don't know. Like GDC is always an interesting one for me because it's it's both very it's both very big and at the same time a very small superset of our like a very small subset of our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a very I mean, small I, part of the world of our industry. Uh, and that's true. And it feels, I mean, you have to keep in mind at the time I lived in San Francisco, so I loved GDC because it felt like the entire world came to me. Yeah. Which in reality is like it. In reality, it's like the entirety of the American and maybe some European devs came to me, yep. but it felt huge, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. But, 
I um, you know what's also interesting? You were talking about this before, and I, I find that fascinating. But American cities have very distinct development cultures, like super oh, yeah. distinct. Like Boston was so interesting in like the two thousand like twelve to two thousand fourteen segment. Yeah, now it's boring as hell. I feel you. That's it's true. It's here. It's a little different though. Like Boston was this weird location with like big trip way, lots of indie, lots of meetups, and also like this weird sort of like um, like this circle between like universities, trip ways, and indies that just kind of mm-hmm. like intermingled in a very natural way. And part of that was that there was just a lack of publishers as well. There's no local publishers in, in yeah, Boston? Most people here are self-published. Most people here are very business focused yep. a lot, a lot because Harvard is here and stuff. And there's just the osmosis of being around business people all the time makes everybody very business focused. Yeah. It's very, um, the, like to the point where when I went indie, I kind of hated it for a long time because <laughs> yeah. it felt like, wow, all indie people care about is, you know, Money. their bottom line. Yep. Or we'd, I would go to the bar and there'd be, um, uh, I'd be hanging out with other indies and this one guy would be talking about how he's doing this one game and it's just art, you know, like it's just fun. And then he'd kind of turn to the side and be like, but you know why I can do this though, right? Yeah. It's because I wrote an app a couple, I wrote an app last year that makes match three style games I honestly, I kind of know who you're talking, I know who you're talking about. That's fine. And it's just like, yeah, it, it creates a new match three game every day. Yep. It Google image searches based on three randomly generated words and i just want you to know what was it sexy dolphin leg match three is the most successful yeah. match three to date and it's just like what the fuck yep yeah um but like that's the kind of development that happens in boston yeah and which I... is n- not something you hear about a lot on the internet it's like very uh very business focused and very um cr- uh creative creative in a way yeah, no, and it's it's fascinating. The only place that Boston reminds me of in the world is is probably like Australia, like Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, I've never been there. It sounds it, cool. It's kind of the same thing, honestly. It's and, and in Australia, it's very different reasons because they had a really big tripway industry that just kind of collapsed about a decade ago. Yeah. So all all those developers sort of like spread over the planet, and those that stayed started their own companies. So that means that the indies there don't start from like starry-eyed like naive like these are just like hardcore triple a developers that mm-hmm. want to grow back to being that but now on their own so they're they're like indies with like folks on growth with a folks on like growing their studio more people like figuring out investments taking on big projects but also like very business focused but without really damaging the creative part of it and yeah, i feel bad Boston yeah, I've heard great things about Australia. I Boston. My fear is Boston has lost. Like we've just had too much brain drain. Yeah. Between like harmonics dwindling, mm-hmm. turbine dwindling, irrational closing, um, the all the AAA left, and then yeah, I, theoretically there's indies, but I never I see more Boston indies when I go to GDC <laughs> than I do here in Boston. Like we never meet up. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's and that, this is kind of like just the fact that like this 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 one city right not too far away from all these other cities not too far from New York honestly that's a doable drive um, even for a European that's a doable drive like that these cities have such different cultures that's kind of what fascinates me right that's kind of what pushes me to do all this travel is because every place is so different so the potential of games coming out of those places 
it's just very different. Like a Boston studio is not going to make a New York game. No. But I want to see yeah, a Boston like... game. And I also want to see a New York game. And I also want to see like a New York game from uh, Manhattan. And I want to see a New York game from like Brooklyn. And I want to see a New York game from Queens. And I want to see like a Boston game from like Cambridge. And, like, and, and as soon as you start thinking about this, about like what stuff, what what potential have we not gotten at because it's just the wrong people making the game, right? And not wrong because they're still making important stuff. But like there's this game that forever sort of like steered me in the direction of what we're doing uh, called Farsh, which is made by an Iranian developer, uh, Mahdi Bahrami. Um, and it is a game about rolling carpets, okay. right? And it's this, it's this really fascinating mechanic that's impossible to explain because there's not really anything like it. But the basic version is that you can roll up and roll out this carpet as you, you move it through the level. And any tile of this level that is under your carpet, when you rotate the carpet 90 degrees, all the tiles that are under the rolled out part will rotate along with your carpet. So it's like kind of like a weird, it's kind of like a weird puzzle, like traversal game. Yeah, um, I'm picturing it in my head. It, it it sounds like it has some interesting, especially if you change the shape of the carpet. Like that could, yeah, that's weird. So it's like this. It is infinitely <laughs> like you can expand and retract this carpet to be longer or shorter, and then use it to manipulate the level. And I was just like, how has this? How have I never seen this mechanic? Right? Like, how is it possible that in sixty years of game development? nobody has come up with a mechanic that would arguably work like back in like the what 80s like this would have been like possible technologically but just nobody did it and yeah. i asked i asked mahdi like how did you come up with like such a like clever simple mechanic just with no like with no like uh history like there's no yeah. history for them you just kind of looked at me and just went like i just made a game about a carpet man like i don't i don't know like, i just <laughs> i just we have carpets i made a carpet game and i was like <laughs> shit you're right like he wasn't looking for a new mechanic he was just coming at mechanics from a different point and thus he just That's made beautiful. a new mechanic like just something that i've never seen before not by trying just by being different <clears throat> from everybody else that was making games at the point so now i want <coughs> i want all of that Sorry. i want everybody i want everybody to make video games like everybody yeah. who wants to make video games should be able to make video games um because, because I just well, want to see what they make. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's such a beautiful mission. Hey, I feel you. And I'm glad you set your alarm when you came onto the podcast today, man. Me too. Uh, I mean, it was really fun talking to you. You're really inspiring. I, I love all the work you do. I, and you clearly do have such a huge passion for games, Rami. Like, this is beautiful, man. I, I will sell, for the listeners, uh, Chris Slate dropped off the call and texted us to keep going so i'm so chris slight would have signed off with us here um but instead i need you to be chris slight today rami right, do, I, do i need to change my voice for that or can i just be uh, if you if you could yeah that would help what what, um, what what would i do how does chris sound um he sounds like chris well he's british oh boy but lot but not like the like the posh british not like, the, like blood, the not, not like the bloody like that kind of thing like not the the bloody bloody hell not that kind of thing uh, I don't know. Well, usually Mate. ends with, he's got like an announcer voice, so he'd be oh, like, uh, yeah. like, well, it was great talking to you, Gwen. Yep. <laughs> well, it was great talking to you, Gwen. That it was great talking to you too, Chris Light, and it was great talking to you, Rami. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
Yeah, this is fun. We should do it again sometime. <laughs> when you're rested and so forth. Eight hours of sleep. Absolutely. This has been Gwen Frey and Chris Slight and Rami Ishmael. And this has been the Dialogue Box. <laughs>